Hello and welcome back to the British Food History Podcast. In case you don't know me, my name is Dr Neil Buttery, food historian and chef. Today I am talking to returning guest Mark Meltonville. He was on earlier in the season talking with Susan Flavin about recreating 16th century beer in Ireland. However, today we are talking about his brand new book published by the excellent Prospect Books called The Tavern Cook, 18th Century Dining Through the Recipes of Richard Briggs. Now, this period of history is of great interest to me, as regular listeners will know. Elizabeth Raffold, the subject of my most recent book called Before Mrs. Beaton, was cooking, well, a little bit earlier in the century to Richard Briggs, and she owned a tavern with her husband, John, at one point. It didn't go well. That book, by the way, is published by Pen and Sword History, as is my now award-nominated A Dark History of Sugar. Anyway, just a quick reminder before we begin... Remember to contact me for the post-bag episode at the end of the season with any questions, comments or queries about today's episode or any episode in the podcast so far. So if you fancy, email me neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath a post on social media or send me a DM on social media. I'm on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram and now threads as well as doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Or place a post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. And if you haven't already, please leave a review, follow or rate this podcast, preferably with a five star rating, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for all your support. The podcast is climbing the charts higher than it has ever climbed before. So I'm very grateful. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs by donating a virtual coffee or virtual pint, or indeed a virtual anything you choose, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support, the blog and podcast tab. All monies go into making more content. On that very same page, you can also become a £3 monthly subscriber. Once signed up, you get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter, and my Easter eggs. I'm going to tell you about this week's Easter egg, as well as a blog post for subscribers, at the end of the episode. Okay, back to today. Mark is one of the country's leading food historians, and he's been involved in many, many projects over the years. I saw him speaking at this year's Leeds Food and Drink Symposium about his big feast at Stonehenge project, which was absolutely fascinating. But today we're going to be talking about tavern cookery and the cook, Richard Briggs, who lived in the latter half of the 18th century. He published a book called The English Art of Cookery in 1788. And in his book, Mark evocatively describes the life of a tavern cook at this time and uses Briggs's book, really as a way to make cooking historical food more accessible and more intuitive to us. We talked about how we found out about Richard Briggs and his book in the first place, the similarities and differences between life and cooking then and now, who may have influenced Briggs's writing, his death, broiling, and other older English words the Brits no longer use but the North Americans do. We also talked about authenticity and much, much more. I'll be back at the end to tell you about the Easter eggs, as I say, and that blog post. But now, Richard Briggs, the Tavern Cook, with Mark Meltonville. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Twice in one season. 
Thanks very much. I'm either doing something right or very wrong. <laughs> I have in my very hand your book, The Tavern Ooh, Cook, yeah. 18th Century Dining Through the Recipes of Richard Briggs. Mm-hmm. I have been reading it all week. Oh, good. I've been enjoying it very much. Uh, we're going to talk about more about why I enjoyed it as we maybe go <laughs> through the topics. Let's just do first things first. I'd not heard, I reckon to have looked at a fair number of 18th century recipe books, and I have to admit, I hadn't heard of Richard Briggs or his book. So could you just tell, well, me and the listeners, (laughs) (laughs) who he was and uh, why you wanted to, why you chose his book? Exactly the reason you just said. I, like you, have seen a lot, especially when it's 18th century books. I mean, Mm. I I can look sideways in my office now and probably see 30 or 40 facsimiles of 18th century cookbooks. And all of this started a few years ago uh, when I was lucky enough to be working on the Royal Kitchens at Kew. Mm. So the kitchens at Kew Palace were derelict. In fact, for a long time, it was thought they were not there, that they'd been destroyed. Then it was discovered they were actually there. And the building still existed, and I was part of a three-year project to get it going again. We mm. spent a lot of make a lot of money making it look like we'd done nothing, and <laughs> put it all back together. Because mm-hmm. the nice thing about Q is that it had not been Victorianized, so it was a working kitchen from mm. the 18th century. And of course, one of the sides to that, if you're going to recreate the food that's cooked there, is you look through all these different books and you start trying to work out. Because what we did have for that kitchen was the uh, account books. So you know the foods that were coming into the kitchen. Mm. That gives you some idea of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And you had not recipes, but menus leaving the kitchen. So you could sort of marry the two together. It also gave us a large, a very good example of how much vegetable matter was coming in and never getting written down. <laughs> the only way you can find recipes for those is to then get a large number of books and look for the name of the recipes and work backwards and forth like that. One of the books that was handed to us by my colleague was this one, Richard mm. Briggs's uh, English Art of Cookery. And I just said, thought the same as you. I thought, I haven't heard of him. Mm. 1788. Okay, another one to go. And as soon as you read the frontispiece, it was a little bit of a game changer for me because I was very used to, I was cooked to the king. I was cooked to the Duke of Northumberland. I'm better than every other cook in the whole of the 18th century, which is the usual frontispiece. Uh, and then they <laughs> And then they spend five pages telling you who trained them and how they're now better than them. So that's the standard format. And it this is. guy just goes, I worked at a, ta- at, a, at a tavern and... This book is meant to help you, the almost junior cook. It's almost, He's almost writing it to the junior cook. Mm. Here's loads of stuff that I cooked in the three taverns that are mentioned in the frontispiece. Have a go. He doesn't write much of an introduction. He doesn't do down anyone else, which I thought was unusual. Mm-hmm. He doesn't pretend to have invented any of these recipes. He simply says, these are the things I like to cook, and this is the way I do them, in m- many cases, in his opinion, much improved. And and so it's it, it was sort of a bit different, really. He's not unique. I've, I've got at least three other uh, tavern cookbooks now since starting mm. on this one. But the whole idea of this, I suddenly thought, right, he cooks in a tavern. He's in a tavern in London. His recipe book is large. It's got lots of things in there that perhaps you could do. I mean, there's a whole chapter on omelettes. This yes. is not the ro- <laughs> this is not the royal cookery where I start the book saying you're going to need a roasting range with a twelve foot chimney. You're going to need all of this. This is a guy who's cooking in London, and I thought, well, perhaps if we unpicked him, his life, his cooking, and his recipes, it really would encourage people to have a go because he's only really got a stove, same as you. And so it's, I hoped it was much more accessible. Yeah, no, it is. It is much more accessible reading them. I would say because obviously, I mean, I 
I wrote my book on Elizabeth Raffold. So obviously I always go to her. But I have to admit, you know, the, the detail he puts in his recipes is better than Elizabeth Raffold's because it's, it's incremental improvements, you know, yeah. of things. You know, she was the first one to kind of really make an effort. Yeah, these recipes do seem appealing and they seem doable. I'm a, well, I know you've missed some chapters out. Mm. <laughs> because I there's no to. because there's no point but that's that's a, um, a historical reason because of things like spits we're not no one's gonna have a spit roast anymore are they so why have the roasts i missed out several chapters mm. partly because his is a 700 page book and <laughs> i wasn't going to mm. transcribe a 700 page recipe book partly because of the wonderful world of the internet that we live in as i say i think very quickly in introduction rich's book english art of cookery is about three clicks away yeah. from a, a, a book download so what's the point in me doing a facsimile of his book which was one of the first ideas oh you're going to facsimile his book and talk about it so, no there's absolutely no point at all you can have this up on your screen in 10 15 minutes it's it's there in various libraries around the world so why not write something more about him and the ideas behind each of the chapters I've chosen, the sort of history of baking, the history of roasting, the terminology, try and bring it to life. And I think I've transcribed 251 of his recipes, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure is more than enough for most of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. No, there's absolutely loads in there. Um, and, it's, and it's all stuff that people would recognise because, mm. well, not everybody would be going to taverns, but most people will be familiar with the kind of fare that's in there. Could we just have a little look at that for a second? What What is, or what was a tavern in the 18th a ta century? A tavern has now got um, confused into the pub. Term. Mm. So you'll, you'll, you'll call some pubs a tavern and so on. No, the, the tavern in 18th century London is a specific sort of place. And the best way of likening it today is it's a fine dining restaurant. It has got a couple of Michelin stars, this one. Right. In fact, in the years after he publishes his book, there is, um, he's referred to in, uh, in what we think of as travel guides to London. You know, what are the six best places to eat in London? Um, Roach's pocket pilot says, you've got to eat here. Theirs is a bit back backhanded. They say something like the fact we don't really know much about cooking, but we like the food. You know, But it's, <laughs> but it's suggesting that um, you're not going to walk into one of these in the same way of a high-end restaurant in a city today. You need a reservation. Mm -hmm. And taverns were a little bit like that, but not so much a reservation. They were more like a dining club. So the famous one that he, he works in is the Globe in Street, Fleet Street. And it's a big, tall Georgian building. Mm -hmm. And it's divided up into quite a lot of little rooms with the kitchens below. And so you and I, with some friends, will book a room. And what often happened in these taverns was it, we did it regularly. Mm. Uh, and, and we meet once a month, once a week or whatever. We have the same room and a meal's prepared for us and our friends. And it's the high-end dining of uh, London at that time. The Globe where he cooked had some very, very famous clientele. Right. And so did a couple of the others. He's one of his clubs. Uh, um, it's called the Wednesday Club. I don't know if you want to guess when they meet. And, uh, <laughs> and they have... Uh, people like Dr. Johnson and his biographer, there is Wilkes, there is Oliver Goldsmith. These, these are figures in the city and an awful lot of hangers-on, sort of young bloods, rakes, slightly over-wealthy, mm -hmm. uh, all of that sort of thing, going along there, joining in one of their evening clubs and enjoying good food. So you don't really just walk into a tavern. You're, you're waiting for your chance to eat there. 
And would it be generally then groups of people or would you find lone diners? That depends on the tavern. Some of them have small booths downstairs and perhaps have a a walk-in setup. Others are a lot more elitist and you really have to have sorted out that you know someone. If you don't know someone, you're not coming in. Uh, (laughs) The the Globe is, uh, one of the things I found out in my research is that the Globe was on the watch list Ah. from the, the mayor's office in the city of London. They were worried about the people that went in there. They were liberals. And, and so the Globe was on this watch list of, you know, keep an eye on what these people are talking about. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's let's make sure they're not uh, not being seditious. So it's at the it's at the edge of politics. It's the edge of There's a lot of artists in there. It's 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 that sort of mix of people. Mm, I guess the coffee houses are, are kind of linked in, in that way. I mean, the previous... Previous yes, previous century, Charles was always all worried about the chat going on in coffee houses, and I really love it. All those and, and the Royal Society kind of got going in the, under these sorts of conditions. So it's a really exciting, mm. really exciting time in history. I think it feels really modern. I always think of it as modern world. They all say the past is another country. Well, this is a country we'd understand. Yeah, you could walk around Georgian London and be surprised by the noise and the bustle, much mm-hmm. like a Monza today. It'd be absolute cacophony of people shouting, carts, all that sort of thing. We can walk around the streets at night. There are streetlights. They might be oil, not not electric, but it's got that feel. If you want to go around somewhere around Georgian London, you grab a cab. It's got mm-hmm. a horse in front, but it's still a cab. So yes, we very much we we get it, and it wouldn't take us long to navigate that world. Like any foreign country or any foreign city, what we wouldn't know is where we can and can't go. So you'd have to be a little bit careful. <laughs> that will lead me in a minute to where, where Mr. Briggs lived, which I think is one of the alleyways you don't go up. Oh, OK. <laughs> I'm amazed you found out where we lived. Ah, Now, the first thing when I was commissioned to do the book, I thought, right, what can we find about him? And I went off completely the wrong way because I don't know what I'm doing. And I thought, right, he's written a book. It's published in 1788. Guess he's 50-ish, you know, to have got to the point to publish a book that big. That Mm -hmm. puts him born. And I'm starting looking backwards and trying to look for a birth certificate or something, something like that. And then I I met one of the researchers at the Guildhall Library who basically sat me down and said, you don't do it like that. What what are you doing, child? Uh, um, you, you, You can't just go looking for someone that you don't even know if he was born in that city or even that country. You know, you what you've got is a book and a date that he published the book. So find an end. And the first thing they found for me was his burial record. Right. And so handed me a copy of uh, St. Bride's Church, which is just down the road in Fleet Street, from Fleet okay. Street. And there in 1792, so only four years after the book's published, a bit sad, really, mm. we found his death record. Now, I'm not sure why. I'd been on this for about six months when I got sent that. And it actually made me sad. I mean, I'm pretty sure I knew he was dead, but <laughs> yeah. but it was just a bit final. It was oh, oh, he's buried in St Bride's Churchyard, and then you've got the little uh, how uh, you've got his name, which is not uncommon. Richard Briggs is a very common name, but it said Cook Globe Tavern, Fleet, mm. Fleet Street. So we're 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 on there. It also said he died of decline, which is oh, a little sad. That is sad, and that could be his charcoal stoves, his cooking environment. It's not mm. it's not definitely it, but it very would, would point towards the fact that decline means he became ill and never never got better. He just went down and down and down. And one of the effects of working in a small kitchen 
in the 18th century is carbon monoxide poisoning mm. from the charcoal stoves. So I'm sad to think that he may have succumbed to his stoves, as they mentioned. Several did. It was quite common for young ladies working in confectionaries and so on, because there just wasn't enough space. Mm. And, yes, uh, people you, would just faint and fall into them sometimes and stuff. Well, you, you get a dose really of carbon monoxide poisoning, and we now know what it does. It, it stops your red blood cells be, uh, from being able to carry oxygen. So it, it destroys a few of them. If you then remove yourself, if you've had a little dose of that for a month, then that everything will repair. But if you do it repeatedly to yourself, eventually you will decline to a point of not getting up again. It's, it's so odd, isn't it? As soon as you just learn some facts about people, especially if you found them yourself, it's suddenly mm. it stops being history and it's suddenly yes, tangible. Absolutely. So once we got his death certificate, you then had a, it told you where he lived or where he was living when he died. And so that gave you a chance to go and look at, uh, it's, it's before censuses. We're not on censuses yet. Mm. So what you've got is something called land tax records, insurance documents, things like that. So I, we found all sorts of things, but mostly where he lived through his land tax, which is the older equivalent of council tax records. Mm -hmm. It showed that he was the head of the household. Dominion owned it, but where he lived and how much he paid a year is his council tax. Mm -hmm. And he lived at somewhere called um, Poppins Court. Oh, that's and that's nice. very romantic sounding. Mm. Poppin, Poppins Court, just up Poppins Alley uh, off Fleet Street. No, not very nice. Oh. Uh, you don't go up Poppins Alley unless you want to be mugged. Oh, <laughs> so okay. uh, the moment you went off the main thoroughfares in London, it all got a little bit nasty. It was tiny and narrow and uh, had a, its own couple of pubs on it uh, mm -hmm. as you went up. And I have a feeling that if you didn't love, live up there, you didn't go up there. So. I like to think of him coming out in the morning, heading to work with some ne'er-do-wells in the corner of a pub going, morning, Briggsy. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that in the book, when he kind of re recreate his walk, to, walk mm. to work. It's very nice. I think I prefer the walk to work that doesn't go down the alley because he's scared, so he goes through the market instead. <laughs> there were two routes. I don't know which one he was. Was he the uh, was he their friend or did he scuttle out scared? I, I don't know. Surely he'd be via the markets. You never know what's going to turn yes, up there. You'd yes. be the first one to pounce on that sturgeon. Yes, or whatever he's, he's, that's he's, just turned up unexpectedly. Yeah, yeah he goes through. <laughs> he goes past Fleet Market, which means yeah, he would have access to to ingredients and things there, and uh, and then wander to work. So yeah, we we got you know, to read the book, but found out a fair bit about him, but not an awful lot. Um, the one thing I can't answer, and you can discuss with me, is how does this man, who's not that well educated, his English isn't very good, his French is atrocious. He's a, ta <laughs> he's a tavern cook, although it's a fine dining restaurant. He's still the man in the basement. Mm. How does he get a contract for a 700-page book that costs seven shillings when it was published, which is about three days' pay for an ordinary worker? Mm. Who buys that book and who gave him that opportunity to, to publish that? There are no patrons in the back, so no one paid for it. There is no, no, subscri no subscribers. Mm. No frontist piece saying, you know, my your grace, thank you for this opportunity. It's just a published book. And it's published in London in 1788. And then it's published in Dublin and then Philadelphia and then Boston. Right, so it really travels too. It, it it goes out. They weren't stupid. It's published in London as the English Art of Cookery, and the word English is dropped from the Dublin and the American version. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Some someone got their PR right there. Indeed. My only guess, and again, this is this is having lived with him for a year while writing, is his publisher, the Robinsons, who are in down in Paternoster Row which is not far from the first tavern and actually where his last tavern when he published the book is the Temple Coffee House where he works is down in Paternoster Row. My scenario, unproven, is that the publishers are his clients. Mm. And it's that old one of 
Neil, Neil, this is gorgeous. You should write a cookery book. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a publisher that doesn't have a cookery book, you know, mm. in your list, then it's a really good idea to get one because and they, they didn't. were right. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got it. He's got right. it in one. Yeah. yeah, different researcher, colleague of mine, Robert. He went through every publication of the uh, the Robinson Brothers, sort of 1750 to 1820, mm. and they mostly published travel books and travel journals, I see. And things like that, and this cookery book. So perhaps this was their go at cookery books. Maybe they fund it. No, we're all guessing here, but a story like that does make sense that they wanted something along those lines and uh, helped him put it together, perhaps. Now, you were saying that his writing style and the way the recipes are organised, you know, means mm. that you actually can can follow them. And I, and I agree. Who do you think influenced his, oh, his writing oh, style, yes. do you yeah, reckon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because I'm going I'm to do a c- comparison because it's somebody that I know well. William right. Verrill. Yes. Now, that is a very different voice to yeah. Richard Briggs. That is very much showing off how mm. great he is, how many times he's solved problems, swanning into other people's kitchens, especially <laughs> if there were female cooks in there. He'll yeah. come in, you know, dried their eyes got them working, solved the problems, and it's all really expensive, caught, well, pseudo-caught cookery. My go-to is saying, well, okay, he's probably been taught by another cook. I'm presuming he's learned on the job. Uh, his education level shows no no signs of schooling first or anything. So if you look around, you've got Verrill. I was thinking uh, the Smith's Court Cookery, Patrick Lamb, who was the teacher mm-hmm. to Smith, of all of those sorts. But they're a bit high end. There's a lot of similarities, but they really are the books I was always useful. I went through the big French one at the start of the uh, uh, 1730s, Vincent La Chapelle. The, the Huguenot chef mm. who really brings French cookery to London, starts a cooking school that he, he runs. His modern cook is massive, massive mm, tone, but really didn't um, didn't show any any real signs of uh, of him having been French trained in any way. So I, I, I discounted that. There's an awful lot of similarities by a cook called Bradley. Do you know that one? Hmm, and sure. and John Farley, which is John published. Farley, yes. Yeah, Farley yeah. is similar. But if you wanted the one that's most similar, I was really lucky it's a famous one. There was a lot of similarities between his book and Hannah Glass. Yeah, I reckon you're right. <laughs> yeah. And Hannah, Hannah Glass is an English cook and it's published in London, but it is now famous possibly beyond its... Um, its original fame because it ended up as the first book published in America, first cookery yeah, book to be yeah. published in America. Not an American cookery book. That goes to someone else a little later. Mm. Amelia, Amelia Simmons, is that right? I think is the first American book. But Hannah Glass is the first cookery book to be published in the New Americas and so has been elevated slightly perhaps beyond its means, which means it's easily available. And if you go through that and uh, young Mr Briggs, you don't just see similarities, you see almost copied word for word. So it's a, it, that is a book that he or his teacher is familiar with. And as I say, I'm I'm not making any apologies for Mr Briggs. Um, he doesn't say anywhere these are his recipes, as I said at the start. He just says, these are the things I like to cook, and I've improved them in some ways. Um, the two that are identical from, um, or nearly identical, from Hannah Glass that, that helped prove it was to dress haddocks after the Spanish way. Ah. And they're both recipes are there, or again, almost almost word, word for word. He's just changed things very slightly. But the thing that makes them odd is this is haddock fillets in basically a Spanish tomato sauce. 
you don't get many tomato sauces at this point. <laughs> she says, you know, take some take some love apples when in season and use that as the basis of the sword. And he's done exactly the same word. He says, pair half a dozen love apples, quarter them at wedding season. The same words are there. It's a, it's as if it's a book that they know. Ms. Glass is famous for one other thing. The first printed version of Yorkshire pudding mm-hmm. is in Hannah Glass. Mm-hmm. Everybody else before that has had things called dripping puddings, batter puddings, and other forms of that. But she is the first to print the word Yorkshire pudding. And there is Yorkshire pudding in Briggs's as well. Although in my opinion, he does actually improve it slightly. Hers is a pan of batter pudding, mm-hmm. Yorkshire pudding, underneath the roast, dripping going on there, the heat making it go crispy round the edge. Because it's not in an oven, but in front of the fire, you have to keep turning it round so that all the sides crisp up. We find it a little soft in the middle compared with a modern one, but it's going to be very, very tasty. What Richard does, he says, oh, yeah, just before it's finished, cut it up into little inch, two-inch squares, and then keep turning those so all the corners and edges get crispy. And right. I thought, oh, well done. And and that I like as an example of the fact, yes, he's taken a recipe and he's done what he thinks will just give it that little edge, improve it uh, over the other things. No, it's nice. It's nice to see, although people aren't really crediting their sources at, at this point, but it's nice to see that he isn't just copying mm-hmm. things wholesale. He, he is adapting them as... As we all do. I mean, we all we all do that. We're just expected to credit our sources, I suppose, yes, these days. Yeah. <laughs> so it was nice because I, I went into the book being perhaps a little bit cynical going, oh, I bet it's going to be just a load of essentially 18th century copy and pasting going on here. But mm. very, very few, you know, it really does appear to be yeah, um, yeah, our, his own work. I'll, I'll give him his due. It's exactly what he said. None of them are, hit, none of them are new, but they are all, he's, he, his way of doing it, his improvements. As you said, you, you're hoping to cook it. One of the things that was really difficult to describe, decide, and I went one way and neither is correct, was not to modernise them. Mm. You have a bit of a fight with those who are publishing you. And they say, oh, you're going to, at the bottom of every recipe, you're going to divide it up into 30 grams of this and 20 grams of that. And and I was very anti doing that because, to be honest, modern recipes mostly don't work. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say, oh, I had this wonderful recipe I got out of a book, but I had to put more sugar in it or more vinegar. Yes. Yeah. And that's because your egg is a different size to the egg that people use. The, the, things are just different. Things mm-hmm. are stronger, weaker. And so there's a there's a whole chapter which I hope will help people just have a go and use some common sense, dare I say. You know? No, it's good. It's getting <laughs> you to the process of cooking and it becoming more intuitive. Funnily enough, I was reading the other day about the cup system in America. I've forgotten the name of the lady who invented it. It wasn't Fanny Farmer. It was no, a person who no. taught Fanny Farmer who essentially standardised it anyway. Yeah. And she brought it in. She thought the cup was a perfect representation of a handful. Mm. And she thought, oh, this is really going to help people become intuitive cooks because if you can see a cup, that's a handful, so you, yes. you'll make a connection. But, of course, it completely backfired. It made everyone <laughs> even more dependent on measures. And then Fanny, yeah. Far- Fanny Farmer you know, was levelling things off, Perfect. saying yes. how packed it was, <laughs> sifting it twice to make sure everything was exactly the same. So it's really nice, actually, uh, to have someone to point out what, what you need to look out for. Well, there's a lot in there. There's a lot of weights and measures. He does to. He does tell you how many pints of sauce to put in. He does tell you a lot of ounces and things, but most of it is intuitive. He continuously says, and now sort of season it to your taste. And what a perfectly mm. way. Do you like it a little bit saltier? Do you like it a little bit sweeter? Well, 
how how dare the cook tell you what you want to eat and so that that is quite liberating there's a lot of help in it. i don't i don't think it's too scary and as as i said if you are a little bit trepidatious we'll start with the omelets then because they're nice they're, they're nice and simple i would really recommend his parmesan omelet oh that's good <laughs> that, that does sound good and then move on perhaps to a sauce uh pe- people are always asking me you know do you want everyone to cook history meals well no not really because that's quite hard work we've people like you and i do that and it's not easy yeah so why would i expect someone to be able to just jump in and bring their friends around from a for a georgian dinner but what i'd like to think is that you've done a dinner party and said oh and by the way this sauce I took out of a book from 300 years ago. Just start introducing ideas and, and take it that way. Perhaps that's less scary. Mm. Well, certainly, I mean, you point out sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of semantics, semantics that are no longer used. So you, <laughs> you help out quite a lot by using the modern well, names. But when you can get your head around that and you can do that little bit of um, translation, and it's not very much translation that you have to do, it's very modern, you know, it's, it's browning meat, searing meat, <laughs> making ruse you know all the things yeah. that we're com- really familiar with and yeah. the things that we're really not going to be familiar with you've really helped us by not including because yes because well, we can't I, do it you know i i i, I had to put a few in you're never going to do every i think every chapter's got a, a left field one thinking well are you really going to stuff cows up at udders probably not but here's the recipe for it mm-hmm. just again to give a flavor of the complete range and the fact they didn't waste food every part of everything is up for grabs in a way that we should really uh, embrace again today. Do not waste. That's that's the watchword of it. Every, every part of every animal and virtually every other ingredient can go in somewhere, even if it's a flavouring for your stock. Absolutely. And if it's being served up at a fairly high-end tavern, then people were eating it because they liked it, not because yes. they had to. No, no, this is this is food that people have, people have chosen. Um, when you're talking about the words, there were a few um, honey ones which took some took some tracking down. One was when a recipe told you to take sandwich carrots. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, I thought, yeah, and the little brain's gone to a nice, crunchy, grated carrot sandwich. That's, that's I think exactly what I thought. Yeah, I think that's fine. Now, so I want, a, and then it didn't make sense in the recipe, and uh, I had to do a little bit more digging. No, these are the carrots grown in the area around sandwich in Kent. Oh. <laughs> that's why I do the digging so that you don't have to. Oh, that's tricky because in old. Books, of course, a lot of nouns have a capital S, whether they're proper nouns or not. So yeah, it, it there's no so help there. And the reason he wanted to use carrots from the town of Sandwich is because they were fatter, more orange ones, because they brought their rootstock, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> in from uh, from Holland. So the carrots around Sandwich were far more what we think of as a carrot and not the multicoloured thinner things that you could buy elsewhere. So he was helping you out. The other one that I thought was just vague and turned out not to be was it tells you to take a Welsh dish. Okay. As hello. Now, is that just a bit of a slang term or it could even be derogatory? Mm. That took a little bit more hunting down. Uh, ceramics are, are, is my training. So I, I thought, okay, well, what, why does a dish from Wales be, is needed from this? And it, it didn't take very long uh, looking through um, ceramic histories to find out that that's a type of dish. It's okay. a specific type of dish from the 18th century made in the pottery in Buckley in North Wales. And everybody listening is familiar with the potter's wheel. Mm-hmm. So you see the potter's wheel and you make a bowl or a, f- a flat dish. No, the Buckley Welsh dishes are not made like that. They're uh-huh. made by having a dish-shaped mould rolling out a piece of clay, like you might have done when you were a kid at school, and just basically pushing it down into it, made out of one slab. And the reason you do this is because the clayers have a lot of sand mixed into it. And if you put it on a wheel, it'd be like pulling up sandpaper. It's not going to be very nice. That <laughs> sand uh, tempers 
the pottery once it's fired, which means it's much more resistant to temperature, so makes a much better oven dish. So it's a single slab made oven dish specifically for baking things in an oven, and especially wood-fired ovens, which can be a little bit hot, I do know. The bit I can't explain about Welsh dishes is when you look at them in museum collections, the majority of them have got something written at the bottom, which is usually an ingredient. I've got a picture of one that I like. It's just got the word mutton written on the bottom in yellow, yellow slips. It's a brown bowl with yellow decoration. And it'll say beef, mutton or something. Now, I'm not really sure why, because... But did you get eat the way down and go, oh, is that what it was? I don't, I don't know what that I'm not quite sure whether it's just decorative or whether some, someone suggested, you know, do you just use that one for mutton pies? I don't yeah, know. I was going to say, is it a cross-contamination thing? shouldn't do. Be- I mean, it's glazed. It, it's not yeah. likely to make much difference. Oh, okay. <laughs> Fine. Of course, now that set me on a on a uh, course that if I ever see a... Uh, a Buckley-made Welsh dish with the word mutton or beef written in the bottom of a little junk shop or antique shop, I'm going to have a lot of trouble not buying myself one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I really don't need it, but I won't be able to convince myself of that <laughs> at the time. Well, the ones you don't need are the ones you really, oh, really yes. want. Yeah, that's the one. No one likes flocking out money for things they need. Where's the, no. fun, of, where's the fun yes. in that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned roasting and you didn't Mm. include roasting but what you did include because it is something that's achievable and it's perhaps what some people maybe think of as roasting now is Mm. is broiling not a word we really have in no we don't use that word the americans still do if you if you work in the states broiling is basically grilling over over bars what we what we call barbecue which isn't is is closer to 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 broiling and broiling can um, be heat on one side or sometimes heat both sides depending on what they're on about. But usually it's a, it's a basic, uh, the grilling of uh, of foods. So the, the Americans use the term broiling all the ter- all the time, and we'll talk about a broiler. They'll, they'll use the word baked as well to describe a chicken. They won't say roast. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Baked, a baked chicken. So it's, they're, they're actually, more than anything, they're just using older English terms that we've dropped. Uh, you know, 18th century um, London did talk about its sidewalks because that's the side mm-hmm. where you walk instead of the carriageway. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. the American English is just older, older English English. No, it's funny, you know, when certain people anyway complain about Americanizations and all that You're kind of You're just bringing stuff. it back. You're just yeah. bringing it back. <laughs> They're speaking more proper than we are, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got to the story of why I think he left oh. one of his things? No, a, I don't a, think so. A ruse, a ruse. Uh, you know what cooks are like when people make fun of them. <laughs> I do. Right. The the, <laughs> the 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 Wednesday Club containing Johnson and Boswell and all these ne'er do wells and so on. One of its um, members was the playwright uh, Oliver Goldsmith, who did She Stoops to Conquer. The story that's told about the tavern is that Goldsmith walks in late into their room where they're all been eating things uh, and says hello chaps you know I'll, I'm just gonna have a quick bit of supper. I'll just call for something. And for some reason they've set it all up. And uh, they convince him to just call for a plate of chops. I've no idea why. Anyway, call for a plate of chops. Goldsmith does this. The servant brings up the chops and he's wincing horribly. He's making all sorts of faces as if he can only just stand to be near the plate. The plate of extremely good chops are put down in front of Goldsmith with some drink and some bread. And all his friends start going, what's that smell? Oliver, what's all? how can you eat that? What's that horrible smell? Because they're all in on that. The joke 
I'm not sure why it's funny. So they go <laughs> on and on and on. They insist he shouldn't eat that. It's so putrid, he should force the servant to eat it. Ah, so I remember the, now. Yes, I did yeah, read it. Yeah, the yes, servant yes. sits down. The servant <laughs> eats it going, oh, this is disgusting. Halfway through, Goldsmith realises everybody's fooled him. The servant's had a free tea. It's all very, very funny. Now, who's the only person who finds this not funny at all? The cook who's just been accused of serving rotten meat. So yeah. in my little head, that he hears about this and young Richard hangs up his apron and goes and works down the road at the White Hart. <laughs> he said, thank you, boys. That's me done. Yeah. <laughs> Thin-skinned cook. Yes. I mean, I had a restaurant for two years, so I can definitely identify <laughs> with him there. Now, you've got a great deal of experience cooking these mm. foods and studying them. Have you got any sort of one or two recipes that you think maybe people should should begin with? if they Well, where, when they buy copy? Um, one, if you're going to do nothing else, there are... There's a section on cheese, <laughs> which uh-huh. again is because we're in a tavern. So you don't tend to get a cheese section. And there are three recipes for rarebit, Scottish rarebit, Welsh rarebit, yes. and English rarebit. Yes. If you do nothing else after hearing this, it's to go and make yourself some English rarebit one evening when you want a bit of supper. You can make the cheesy top any way you like. You can follow the one in the book, or you can just make your own favourite toasted cheese or or mustard mix for for a rarebit. That that's that's not the thing. The difference is you cut a thick slice of bread, you toast it on both sides, mm-hmm. and have your grill ready to put the cheese and toast underneath. And just before you do that, you have next to you a shallow dish full of claret wine that's been seasoned with salt and pepper, and you dip the bread quickly into that cover with cheese and toast. So you've got hot cheese, warm claret, crunchy toast, and English rarebit. Anyone can do it, try it. Now, I've got a question that I ask a lot of people, and I'm particularly interested in what you say, what you think of this, is is how important do you think um, authenticity, I mean, that's a bit of a woolly term. Obviously, we spoke a few weeks ago about beer. I mean, you're you're going to great Mm. lengths, greater lengths than probably anybody else for Um, authenticity. But in reality, how is it, how how important is it to you, do you think? In my work as a historian, very. Mm. In my encouragement for the rest of you to have a go, almost irrelevant. Uh, Authenticity cannot, at the bottom line of it, I do not have the taste of an 18th century man. I grew up in England. My diet is filled with refined sugar. I can't Mm -hmm. taste some of the the sweet things that were sweet considered sweet in the past. So basically get over it. Um, You know, I've got metal in my teeth (laughs) from fillings. They react with certain foods, uh, (laughs) which which ruins it for some of this. It's the reason why some people don't like beer out of a pewter tankard. It's nothing to do with the beer. It's the uh, electric reaction in your mouth. Mm -hmm. So which means that given a pewter tankard of Georgian ale, if I get that buzz, I've ruined it. The authenticity is not there. So that's that's the one end of it, is, is you can't. In my research, I try and be as authentic as possible and try and explain things, how you can get as close as you can. And I, I think it's very important that we we stick to our guns in our research, especially when I'm doing experimental work that's to be published mm-hmm. with its results and so on. Yes. But the middle point of that is, is to encourage people to think a little, to try something new. And if you want to make a Tudor tart and sit down and have it with chips and ketchup, what do I care? I want you to enjoy yourself. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a great hobby, cooking yes. anyway. Why not just yes. add a little bit of extra yes. excitement and interest by doing something yeah. that's unusual? Because 98% of the time, I would say, you're going to be very pleased with what you've oh, made. Yes. There's only the odd really weird one or strange combination. I'm going back 4,000 years of cookery now that I've been doing over the last 20 years. I don't think I've ever had anything bad. I've had things where it's not in my my flavour range. 
that I you know I'm not very keen on that. I've had mm-hmm. things I might not want again, but they're never because that is bad food. It's because it's not my my like or dislike. There are quite a few medieval dishes where it's cold chicken and honey, which just doesn't work for me. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean other people wouldn't go, oh, this is lovely. It's you know it has an Asian kick to it or something. No, so so no. I, of all the recipes I've ever worked through, apart from when I've messed it up. <laughs> which is different entirely. The, it is all good food to somebody and we should embrace that. Thank you very much, Mark. Mark's book, The Tavern Cook, 18th Century Dining Through the Recipes of Richard Briggs is out now and is published by Prospect Books. You can find out more about Mark on his website, which is meltonville.uk and you can follow him on Instagram at markmeltonville. And he's well worth following on there because he posts a lot of his historical cooking experiments, which is absolutely fascinating. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, earlier in the season, where he speaks with Susan Flavin about the Food Cult project in Ireland and recreating that beer, there's a link to it in the show notes. Actually, if you want to hear more about 18th century food and dining generally on the podcast, there's an episode called 18th Century Dining with Ivan Day and an episode on Elizabeth Raffold with Alessandra Pino interviewing me about Ms. Raffold. Right, Easter eggs. There is one quite hefty excised bit of chat all about 18th century puddings, pastry and pies, one of my personal favourite topics. We talk about the now infamous Yorkshire Christmas pie. So that's this week's Easter egg. Also on the blog, there's a post with the history and recipe for malt loaf, one of my all-time favourite tea breads. The recipe and the Easter egg that I just mentioned are only available to £3 monthly subscribers. If you want to access those and all the other premium content, visit BritishFoodHistory.com. Before I go, don't forget the special events that I'm involved with in September, the first one being the Elizabeth Raffled event at Manchester Central Library on the 13th of September at 6pm. There's the Ludlow Food Festival on Sunday 10th September at 2.30pm. Talking about Elizabeth Raffold there as well. I'm also talking at the Chelsea History Festival on Friday, 29th of September, 2023, at 6pm. That one is about the history of sugar. Links to all of those events are in the show notes, of course. It's time to go. Please don't forget to contact me regarding the postbag episode. Have a wonderful week, please. I shall see you next time. Cheerio. <laughs>